instead of colonizing the name of God, all these tech giants, they're trying to make you believe that they are now the gods, that you should be following their lead with the same kind of like missionary zeal. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. If you listen to this podcast with any regularity, you've probably heard me say that technology is not neutral, that it isn't ahistorical, and that as much as the industry thinks it's about the future, it's astonishing how profoundly it replicates the past. And this includes our colonial legacy. Quite frankly, you can't expand West without using technological tools. Jeff Doctor is a technologist and an impact strategist with Anamiki Indigenous Technology. I'm Calgut in Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. For those not fortunate enough to know who the Haudenosaunee people are, we are located largely southwest of Toronto in what's currently sometimes called Canada, depending on who's talking. Um, and our homelands are actually just south of Lake Ontario. But uh, my community, Six Nations of the Grand River, we're just a couple hours southwest. Jeff's work points to how the colonial project was also a technological one and how that relationship impacts Silicon Valley today. He draws a line from colonial ideologies, like the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny, that justified the theft of land in the name of God and so-called civilization, to the present-day tech industry and its worship of progress for the betterment of humanity. This was a sweeping conversation. We touch on the obsession with space and escaping Earth by current tech CEOs, on indigenous data sovereignty, and on a seminal painting defining American art in the 19th century, John Gass' American Progress. Google it. It's an image of a white angel laying down telephone wire. There's no hiding the connections between technology, progress, settler colonialism, and Christianity. There's also a moment in our discussion where my own biases are pointed out. And I was reminded just how much our views of these discussions are shaped by our own lived experiences. Here's my conversation with Jeff Doctor. I, I thought we could start. Um, I've heard you talking about the ahistorical nature of technology. Um, and that there's some real problems there. And I think I believe that as well, um, pro- coming at it from a very different standpoint. But like, I agree, like there's this constant notion of progress that exists in technology that is, is fundamentally ahistorical, and it happens time and time again. And, and you've talked about two sort of concepts in particular, like the idea of progress in these values and this Eurocentricity of our historical narrative, and about manifest destiny. And I wonder if we could start with both of those. Um, that how are these two ideas connected in your mind between progress and manifest destiny and kind of this idea of the making of North America? Yeah. So being an indigenous person, you don't really get the luxury of not constantly thinking about history um, because you're constantly dealing with the legacies uh, of that history placed upon you, whether you like it or not. And so this is everywhere from your day-to-day life to like your legal structures and the laws that you have to follow and why you have to follow certain laws over others. And so for me, when I entered uh, tech, I've always been interested in tech from a very practical standpoint. Like it was actually from uh, from my mom um, that we were early adopters of the internet. Like I've 
basically been born into a computer. <laughs> and so at the same time, I've also been uh, like my mom is white and my dad, he's Haudenosaunee or Cayuga. And this isn't to, to get into that kind of trope of the whole two worlds thing, because it isn't. But I grew up outside of my culture, outside of my community. So I didn't grow up on the res. Um, we moved away from our territory uh, when I was pretty young. And so that's important context, because where I'm coming from is, is different than uh, other people. But at the same time, <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard for me to kind of speak kind of straightforward answers uh, to questions like this without providing like endless context. So I'm going to jump back into the question itself of like manifest destiny. So when we're thinking about these larger kind of questions about about how we relate to each other on these lands, we can't ignore the overriding legal premises like doctrine of discovery or even the concept of terra nullius. And so for those that aren't familiar with the doctrine of discovery, it's basically the early papal principles that determine, or at least according to the church, uh, the Catholic church and all of its subsidiaries uh, to today, um, largely argued that this place that some called North America was basically empty and devoid of fully fledged human beings. Now they never denied that there weren't people here, but they didn't fully conceptualize us as full human beings. And so that kind of insidious logic seeps throughout so many aspects of our lives that I'm so, like, I guess, used to it that it's really hard for me to even describe it when it's so prevalent in all aspects of my existence. So how that comes across as tech, I mean, even as a kid, like I grew up playing a lot of video games and a lot of these video games, like civilization, perfect example. I learned more from civilization, supposedly about um, the Iroquois, the French call us. Um, we call ourselves Haudenosaunee because there's literally a faction in the game <laughs> called the Iroquois. I, I remember that. I played yeah. that game growing up too, but but clearly didn't see it the same no, way. No, I'm learning about Plains Natives <laughs> in school. And I remember still as like an early school project of having to do like a diorama with Lego to make like a diorama of a buffalo jump. And the school taught me, yes, these are your people because you're all Indians, you're all the same, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm playing this video game that's going on about these logics of the, what is it, the Forex, expand, exploit, um, exterminate, yeah. <laughs> you know, and doing so with like the Iroquois faction. And mm. anyway, so, so these kinds of things, like I've always kind of grown up with, but never had the opportunity to really question. And so long story aside, I got into uh, sociology in university and my MA is in uh, largely techno sociology. So kind of like these intersections between technology and people. And at the same time, here I am at University of Victoria and we're talking about um, all these kind of like high level sociological concepts, but never talking about the actual local indigenous communities like Lekwungen peoples <laughs> and and all these literal reserves that are scattered throughout uh, Vancouver Island. So we just didn't talk about it. And so we never even really talked about Doctrine of Discovery, Terra Nullius, and certainly not Manifest Destiny. So Manifest Destiny is, I find in Canadian culture is interesting because often it's denoted to the Americans. And that is true that that is where the original notion kind of came from. And this is very important to tech when you think about where is tech built. 
And so when we're thinking about like the general notion of manifest destiny, this constant like expansion West or this notion that it's a God-given right for Americans to basically um, steal land for all intents and purposes. Um, this actually has historical consequences to Canada because Canada wasn't Canada back then. It was literally a series of British colonies that were very concerned about these Americans that are constantly stealing more and more land. And so these settlers north of the imaginary line uh, had to recruit and ally with the local indigenous folks, including the Haudenosaunee, um, basically <laughs> to keep each other safe from Americans. And so at the same time, so Canada itself, when it's talking about its version of manifest destiny, what it is, is trying to respond to its own basic corporate theft of, of territories um, in its own coffers so the Americans can't seize it. And they needed indigenous folks to support them in this endeavor. And then you get into questions about Confederacy and all those kinds of things. And then that's my long-winded way of saying that like Canadian exceptionalism is a myth. Um, we have our own long entrenched uh, series of colonial histories. The points I want to get across is these notions of like this God-given right to conquer, to control, to expand, to constantly dominate. It's like hegemonic. It's so like to those that live through these things from the side of the oppressed, you are forced to see it because it's part of your mundane reality, but for everybody else, it's kind of not, right? And so when we're thinking about like how um, all these aspects of colonialism affect us today, especially through tech, one way to think about this is not trying to go at it head on, but, but kind of um, sneaking into the back door of the language itself. And so when we're looking at a lot of the common terms that are used throughout technology discourse, uh, largely it's very linear, it's very ahistorical, and it has, quite frankly, genocidal mm. notions of what progress means. Yeah, I wanted to zero in on progress there, because I think that's like a real connecting point between a central narrative of colonialism, which was about progress, mm. right? This was a perception of progress. And that clearly is embedded in the way technology is talked about, that, that we are making things better with the employment of new technologies. And so how do you connect those two, that historical colonial notion of progress and the way the tech sector uses it or the people who imagine the tech sector use it? Yeah, well, they never say progress for who? Ever. Like, it's always just this notion of progress. And then then sometimes they give the, the illusion to, and like I'm saying they, the nebulous they, right? Um, this notion of yeah. humanity. And so again, when thinking about the language that's used, and again, this is English that we're using itself tells you a lot. Um, like keywords of like discovering, finding, exploring, making new, frontiers, pioneers, uh, the wild west, um, this notion even of wilderness, um, staking claim, like, all of these words are the same kind of logics that are found within justifications for the doctrine of discovery in Terranelius. This constant notion that to proceed, you have to constantly be finding new space to effectively dominate and exploit. And so other words you hear is the kind of the binaries so, so often found in tech of domination and exploitation language. Um, and this also invokes uh, the history of slavery, because you can't basically separate indigenous history with black history. The two things are 
inherently intertwined. And so you even see a lot of the language in tech that is anti-Black. And Indigenous people are not exceptional in terms of anti-Blackness. Like, we also can fall victim to using these kinds of rhetoric. And so when we're talking, like, language like the whitelist versus the blacklist, or master versus slave, or even, like, evangelist and the native, um, progressive versus primitive, and then when you're getting into, like, investors, like, angel investor, like... Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. That's That one is, yeah. Absolutely. But it doesn't just come from nowhere. <laughs> and the words that are used create the worlds that are shaped in your mind. And so all of these notions, to me, speak to this larger kind of narrative thread of manifest destiny. And when you actually look at the, the classic painting, I think it's John Gast, of it's like the, the giant white woman, I think she's called Columbia, like marching west across the plains. You know, I use that in all my presentations because one, I'm pretty sure I leave. I have to say, I, I saw you. I saw one of the presentations where you use that. Yeah, and I was blown away. Like it is an it is an astonishing thing. Yeah, and man, are you right in terms of like it has everything, right? It has the religion and the spiritual and the conquering and the telephone yeah. lines even to make it like embedded in technology, right? Man, it's powerful. Yeah, because quite frankly, you can't expand West, which is a physical thing, without using a lot of technological tools. You need communications networks, you need infrastructure, you need travel, you need logistics, you need all these kinds of things that are rendered invisible through their normality. And you really see that depicted in that image because that image is about technologies. But then what are those technologies doing? And so this is where you can get to the very extractive nature of tech itself. Again, using language, we think about like pipelines or mining or crunching or minting or investing in monopolies and control and domination and, you know, extraction, infinite growth, constantly finding and creating these new relationships of domination and exploitation. It's so inherent in so much dominant tech rhetoric, especially when you get into what, you know, the so-called thought leaders itself, a a problematic concept I don't like. <laughs> um, it really mm -hmm. denotes like this individual kind of like semi like ethereal kind of demigod that somehow knows all the answers if only like the rest followed. And then you really see this manifested in the tech billionaire class. Like all of them are literally trying to colonize space right now. It's not even a joke anymore. They grew up watching the same crap that I grew up on television you know, sci-fi, playing the same video games. Heck, maybe we can play games against each other. Who knows? Now they're trying to literally do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> because they grew up with those same mm. rhetorics, those same myths, those same, like, they grew up in the same hegemonic society that I did. And the only difference is I learned at a later age, hey, wait a minute, why do I have this status card? Hey, why don't I have the same rights as this person? Hey, why is am I treated like this and that? You know? And so when you see these people trying to expand into the cosmos and the, again, the language that they use, like technology itself is so religious, I would argue, the way that it's currently uh, manifested blatantly by white people, to be blunt, you know, instead of colonizing in the name of God, all these tech giants, they're trying to make you believe that they are now the gods, that you should be following their lead with the same kind of like missionary zeal when you're ultimately drilling it down, you know, they have the same kind of unwavering belief in the unknowable through these like technological black boxes. They're alluding to like the deep mystery of the algorithms and, and, you know, delegating decisions to the almighty AI and like ultimately this larger narrative of like saving us, saving humanity 
But only as long as we like maintain the faith, you know, the unbelievers will be cast aside because they don't believe in the mission or the sweeping arc of quote, progress. Again, they're not specifying who, ever, just humans. But the problem is when, again, you're going back to the doctrine of discovery, not all people on this planet were considered humans and still aren't according to our legal structures today. I want to talk about indigenous data sovereignty here and that notion and how it bumps up against um, uh, a broader discourse around data sovereignty as a good, right? Like I think we're, there's, a, there's a lot of conversation about um, whether um, data should be owned by people or owned by countries or sitting in servers in our country of our jurisdiction, right? There's all sorts of ways we talk about data sovereignty. But um, you talk about it as indigenous data sovereignty and even problematizing that notion. So can you sort of walk us through what people mean by indigenous data sovereignty and and how you think we should be reframing that? Yeah, so I have a common challenge where I only speak English. It's my only language because I've been forced to speak it. And, um, but a lot of terms in English don't adequately describe things. And then how do you use the language of oppression to describe oppression <laughs> or a colonial language like English to describe something? So, so what you're often forced to do is create a lot of workarounds. And so really what this word of indigenous, quite frankly, it was a political workaround. Um, and you really don't understand this or see this until you go to other countries where um, they use it like they're translating. They translate indigenous into like, you know, an indigenous plant, you know, as opposed to here where it's become more kind of common to think like interchangeably with, let's say, aboriginal or even old school language of Indian. Right now in Canada, again, Indigenous has a very long history, and I could go on and on about words here, but I do have to kind of preface this, that this place called Canada, through Section 35 of the Constitution, it denotes basically, um, and again, I'm using self-referential language here, Indigenous people in Canada are classified as First Nations, or I think it says Aboriginal, because that was the term at the time, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Now, these are categories, according to the Canadian governments, of very diverse peoples. Now, the problem with that is that the notion of indigeneity is itself kind of a construct that exists in relation to colonialism. Now, what I mean by that is it's an artificial binary between the settler and the indigenous. And so without colonialism, you just have people. So, for example, I don't identify myself as indigenous. However, I am indigenous because what I am is Haudenosaunee. I'm part of a political entity. I'm part of a people's. And we have our own politics, our own laws, our own humanity, our own all the things that, you know, all humans have. However, when we're acting in solidarity and we're doing kind of political actions, the notion of indigenous is a useful political concept to illustrate that, hey, we as peoples, we've also been colonized like other peoples. There's things in common. We can now enact kind of relations of solidarity to ultimately disrupt colonialism, ongoing colonialism. So it's a collective notion. And then the individual where I get my individual rights as an indigenous person is really through Haudenosaunee law and how that operates, not Canadian law. But Canada, because it is a colonial state, it needs to basically fold everybody within its borders 
So, <laughs> um, so that's important though, because the problem is, and again, how this kind of folds into tech is that there's often these like, these assumptions that when I log into something, for example, um, I'm logging in as a Canadian. I can only sign up to things as a Canadian because it's assuming that I as a person have effectively, whether opted in or whatever, to being a Canadian citizen. Now, I never had a choice. I was born into this and I was born into having a status card. And the, the Indian Act and the way that works is its whole own very interesting history and path because that doesn't technically consider us as humans. It considers us as wards of the state. Now, again, that goes against these larger international notions of being indigenous, aka being a person that belongs to a peoples that have existed far beyond the confides and the historical constructs of a colonial state. So in other words, we've always been here <laughs> and we've always been ourselves regardless of what anybody else says. So this is where you can get notions of, of self-determination and, and so on. Well, and interestingly, just to your point about when you log on, you are considered mm -hmm. Canadian. So the way we've built the technology infrastructure is to impose an identity based on your literal coordinates, mm -hmm. which clearly co conflicts with ideas of multiple nations existing within a physical space. Yeah. So that disconnect is, is quite literal there, I think. Yeah, it's, it's messy. <laughs> and again, I can't universalize this experience to all other indigenous people because Haudenosaunee, we have our own very specific historical trajectory. And so when I say I don't consider myself Canadian, that does not mean that other indigenous people don't. Some do. I mean, when you look at the history of the Inuit, like politically, many are conceptualizing themselves as belonging to confederation. They're opting in, which is very different than having it forced on you. You know, you log into something, it says you are Canadian or you get no option. You know, you get these constant microaggressions and micro reminders that this is the only way. Meanwhile, you get the rhetoric and the lip service from the government saying, oh yeah, no, we actually believe in reconciliation and nation-to-nation -nation relationships and this and that and that. But when you actually look at their policy or tech policy in general, you realize, hey, wait a minute, all of these logics are still inherently assimilatory. So the quick example I'll give is everybody's doing territory acknowledgements now, right? Often they're acknowledging this kind of concept of, of indigenous people without acknowledging people themselves. And so I was literally at a conference and they start with the territory acknowledgement, which they butcher the pronunciation. They get all the people wrong. It's just, it's insulting. And then they have the audacity to start talking about Canadian sovereignty, especially when it comes to tech and data security and all these things. Again, all these assumptions that the only thing that must happen here is Canadian sovereignty. And the problem is, is those logics will then criminalize me because they will deem me as somebody that's ultimately a threat to Canadian sovereignty. And so that's when we're talking about the sovereignty part of Indigenous data sovereignty. Now, sovereignty itself is another kind of workaround term, because even sovereignty, the way that the language has been deployed and whatever, is going back to the king and the queen, and it doesn't quite fit, but it's the word we, we use. And, and, and data as well. And data is another big, complicated concept. Um, and then what does it mean to digitize Indigenous information and so on? But anyway. Can we pause on that for a moment? Because I... How does colonial rhetoric and colonial mindsets affect what people mean by what data is? Like, how, how should we imagine? Or how, how do you imagine data? Yeah, so, 
You see this again in the language people use. So often data is conceptualized in English as like a noun or as like an object, as something that's basically devoid of agency, uh, devoid of life, devoid of any kind of like self power or whatever. Um, that means it's something you can own. It's something that you can control and possess. And so I don't want to cause too much of a ruckus, but you know, when you're thinking of like the OCAP principles, um, which you might be familiar with, um, they're established by the First Nations Information Government Center as a way to basically figure out how to actually like respect indigenous data sovereignty and research protocols. And so the shorthand being indigenous peoples or specifically First Nations people um, should have the rights or already have the right, I should say, as an inherent right, as again, as inherent sovereign peoples have already had the right to own, control, uh, access and possess their data. Now, not all indigenous peoples uh, believe, again, in these kind of notions of owning and, and I guess larger kind of meta questions about what does it mean to own an object or a resource. And so this gets tricky. <laughs> So one way that I prefer personally to think about data is think about what exactly is data in relation to. And again, as a non-language speaker, I can't really speak to this very well. But if you're thinking data more like a verb rather than a noun, um, it kind of changes the way you think about it. Because like you're describing something and you're describing something in relation to something else. And that invokes a relationality aspect, which is very different than something that's kind of like inert and singular and like dead. And so when you look at married data sovereignty, um, it's a different world altogether. They are using their own language to describe it. They're invoking their own legal principles, their own cultural principles. And it's a different way of thinking about what data means and what data means in relation to each other. And then how data, um, is not necessarily owned by individuals or relates to individuals, but how it relates to collectives. So when when we're talking about indigenous data sovereignty, it's kind of like an international catch-all to describe these kind of larger discussions. But really, honestly, what we're talking about is Haudenosaunee data sovereignty, or you know, like Mi'kmaq data sovereignty, or Anishinaabe data sovereignty. Really, like the actual sovereignty of peoples, um, how they govern themselves, like by themselves for themselves. It strikes me that. Um, a large part of the way we've talked about reconciliation has to do with bringing things to light, mm -hmm. <laughs> bringing data to light that was owned and hidden by others. Mm. Do you think that's a positive way of thinking about the information and knowledge that was controlled by the state, by the church, by the people who controlled that data and that history? Do you think bringing that to light is the right way of thinking about this? Or it seems to me you might be suggesting something broader than that to me. Yeah. So, again, it's hard to think in a language and critique the language and use the language all at the same time when you're conceptualizing something else. But even this notion of bringing to light, mm. proven truth, right? Mm. Again, yeah. light, dark, problematic. But, but I know what you mean yeah. about... Yeah. Let's step this back to like just common notions of building consensus about what reality is. <laughs> let's just let's go all the way back. That, that feels like a that feels like a good place. Let's go to epistemology. Yeah. Yeah. And ontology. And so <laughs> so when we're thinking about and this is why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was called that. It wasn't just called the Reconciliation Commission. Truth. Truth and reconciliation mm. in that order. You need truth before you can even start 
to have any form of reconciliation. But you can see it very interesting when certain people, these kind of um, born-again Indian sabers, and excuse my snarky language here, but they love reconciliation. And I call these folks, this class of folks, reconciliation vultures, and I see it all the time in my work. It's often savior logics that they think that they, their version of reconciliation is saving, which again goes back to early Christian dogma, and again goes back to like manifest destiny and the reason why the residential school system was created. And when you're looking at where I'm from and the Mohawk Institute, it was created for a reason <laughs> to basically save the man by killing the child. Like that is a brutal truth that has to be everyone needs to sit with that and be aware of what that means. And all of this genocide denial, and this isn't just genocide as the past, like this has ongoing legacies, but even today when we're talking about the physical death and destruction of a group or removing children from their families or territory. We're talking about the child family welfare system. We're talking about Witsilatin. We're talking about the Nishani territory. We're talking about so many aspects of genocide are ongoing as a basic truth. And until we can even, one, talk about that, much less truly acknowledge what that means to share this space in these lands that some people call Canada, how in the hell are we ever going to, one, stop ongoing genocide if we can't even identify it? How do we then support the survivors of this in true, fair, open, and honest and equitable ways that don't re-traumatize them? And then how do we, how do we grow out of this? How do we get past this? And we're not even anywhere near any of that yet because we still have dominant people <laughs> basically denying all this <laughs> like and really honestly only in the last like five years uh, can we even talk about it in a forum like this I and i have to call you out here and i mean no disrespect but i listened to your interview with that bishop and it, it hurt me because here you have a person part of an institution which has done so much harm and continues to do harm, and now he has rebranded himself as a new, new, new savior. And I mean no disrespect to him as a person, but he's still part of an institution, a structure, an entity, as part of these larger systems of oppression that we have to at least talk about <laughs> at a minimum and identify. Of course, we come at these conversations which with these massive blind spots, and it's such a powerful reminder of that that I went into that conversation um, with clearly knowledge of church abuse, <laughs> knowledge of that history, but it was not at, my f the, at the forefront of my mm -hmm. mind when we were having that conversation. I thought that was a conversation about spirituality and technology and like does that provide us with a new lens through which to imagine technology? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and with that, but I came in, that's because of my massive blind spot coming into this and my lack of centering and prioritizing a certain history. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's just such a powerful example of that. It's, it, it is remarkable just how fundamentally different 
um, different people's views of history and what is prioritized in those are, which is exactly the reminder about where we are with some of these technologies at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like certain views of history and knowledge have and and agency have and ways of thinking have been prioritized and embedded in these technologies. So like. <laughs> These issues aren't separate, as as you make so clear. Yeah, so. like all all technologies are political. All technologies have agency. All technologies do stuff and have consequences, and are built by people with those exactly. Things. And they're built by people in different mm. power relations. And this is where I can get all fancy with the privilege that I have a sociology degree. Like I had the luxury of being born into basically a white environment. This gives me material advantages, and I can basically progress through life basically as a white person with all the privileges that comes from that. And then I can get a fancy degree, and I can learn about all these fancy concepts, and I can talk all fancy-like with these magical words that white people love. But this also means that I understand the world in a different way, and I have the language to attempt to articulate these kind of larger kind of, if you want to say hegemonic or dominant kind of notions that not everybody sees the world the same way. And the people that kind of like create the world are often the people in power, the people that have privilege, the people that have been born into intergenerational privilege. And because of that, like you're saying this, this language of, I don't personally like the language of like blind spot, but like, or even ignorance, but just like, when you yeah. live in any kind of hegemonic society, and again, <laughs> like a society where basically certain versions of the world are the only world that is real, it is very difficult to understand when you're of that privileged class that not everybody exists like literally in that world. They just don't. And in Canada, we have an apartheid system. We have the Indian Act that in Canadian law specifies that certain people have different rights than others. <laughs> like, and I know this because I was born into it. <laughs> but even then, I had to leave and come back and like come back to my community, come back to my family, come back to my land. So I can be like, hey, wait a minute. Why is this? Why is this? Why is this? You know, and figure it out from there. The one thing that's that's always true about certainly the history of modern digital technologies is there's a constant focus on the future and not the past. Mm-hmm. And um, this is problematic in all sorts of ways because um, it, it, it absolves oneself of the injustices of the past, of abuses that might have been occurred using these technologies in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also allows us always to project into some imagined future, an imagined state. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're at that moment, a bit of another reset again with the way technology is being talked about. Web3, and I think that's one way it's doing it. I think the metaverse is another one. Um, And I'm wondering how you think about what you're hearing now coming from these very same people who built our previous generation of technologies and how they're talking about the future. I don't think they're really talking about the future, quite frankly. And I don't think they're talking about the present either or the past. I think that it's basically a smokescreen of what they're doing is they are trying to get things in the material present by creating fantasies 
of some sort of future that they think through just the dominant force of will that they can just magically project and it will just happen. Now, that's very different than worldviews that I'm being brought into of Hodenshine worldviews of thinking about generations thinking, thinking about what it means to live in collective with not only humans, but like non-humans, with the world itself, with all of these kinds of things, and even time and space are conceptualized differently. So again, coming into these notions of whose worlds get prioritized as true and false and blah, blah, blah. So, so that's my long-winded way of saying that technology or any kind of version of the future that cannot trace its origins in the past, that cannot identify, that cannot be explicit about them, that cannot be truthful about them, has no actual future because you cannot predict the future, period. But what you can do, at least according to Haudenosaunee worldview or even other indigenous worldviews, is this notion of you're responsible for consequences of what you do and then the consequences of what you do have basically either what you want to call them externalities or unintended consequences. But another way of thinking about it is that you don't own the world today. All you're doing is creating the conditions for the future generations. And what I mean by that is that when I think about my day-to-day life, I'm constantly thinking about my ancestors, about the people that got me here, people in my community, people in my family, people in my nation, people in the Confederacy, how this long, long kind of arc of history and truth has come together to this present moment. And with that knowledge, with that wisdom, with that appreciation, both good and bad, how can we learn from the mistakes? How can we learn from, even if you want to call it a mistake, how can you learn? And then be better informed so that when we do things today, we're doing so responsibly with the notion that, hey, wait a minute, a couple generations from now, when I no longer exist as this corporal being, the future generations, when they're thinking about me, how do they judge me? How do they, how do they forgive me? How do they think about the things that I've done, I've worked through to create the conditions for their lives? And how do I judge myself according to that? You know, and that's, that's a different way of conceptualizing the world that is thinking a lot more about core responsibilities to not just yourself, but to your family and basically the people who don't even exist yet, whether you know them or not. It's irrelevant. You're still doing things that creates consequences for others throughout time. Beyond a, a greater sense of impact and responsibility, what does embedding Indigenous histories into technology mean? Or how do you imagine that world being different if we were to embed those histories into them? I think what I think about is, again, thinking about like the trends of history. And one interesting thing to think about, and you have to be careful not to romanticize this, of why did my ancestors choose to use or not use the things they did? Why did they develop in certain ways and not others? Why did they, quote, progress in some ways and others? Like, and so, and and again, without romanticizing, you think about like when, when, when settlers first came to these shores and there's a mutual kind of exchange of knowledges, of technologies, of ways of being. Like, what did folks already here have? Well, they have infrastructure, they have agriculture, they have all sorts of technologies around kind of civic responsibilities and governance and just ways of like living 
and not in this kind of cheesy like Disney way of like harmony with nature, but just like there's a reason why indigenous cultures basically survived and existed and thrived for very, very long times. Like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is like a thousand years old. And then when you look at the technologies that settlers brought, where they bring, <laughs> I'm going to be snarky here, but like guns, germs, and steel. And so guns, okay, you can use them to harvest animals. But harvesting animals in a good ethical hunting way means basically establishing a relationship with an animal who is basically giving their life to you so that you can live. It's a relationship. Now, a gun can also be used just to indiscriminately murder things. Ugh. <laughs> and quite easily. So that has a responsibility. Again, when you're thinking in generations, maybe there's a reason why certain technologies simply were not developed here. Because people had the knowledge and foresight and perhaps experience that maybe that's a bad idea. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is this larger kind of question of just because you can create something or use a technology does not mean that you should. And maybe you should talk to other people, whether these are people older than you that have been through more things, whether these are people that are going to be using this thing, whether these are people that have like, you know, are going to be suffering the long term consequences of these things. These people should their knowledge and expertise should be appreciated, not consulted like this kind of tokenistic, like, yeah, I heard you, but I'm actually already decided what I'm going to do. Like truly deep down appreciate that everybody has a purpose and a role and knowledge that we can all benefit from. We just have to figure out how that we can collectively make these kinds of decisions. And then sometimes that means saying no. Sometimes that means like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't build this thing because it's just, it's not worth it. That was my conversation with Jeff Doctor. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.